will please turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 5. We'll continue our uh, study in this book. 1 Timothy chapter 5. We'll be looking at the entire chapter this morning as it gives uh, instructions on how we should value the relationships within the church and how just particular instructions on how we should handle those relationships. I think it's important for us. Uh, so before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his uh, help with the text. Our Lord Jesus, as we come together your church today to worship you, to read from your word, be instructed by it, Lord, we pray that you would do just that, that you would guide our hearts to the truth. They are at times only seeking the things that would honor us. They will only seek the lies of the world. Uh, we are tempted easily by things that aren't true. And so, Lord, we pray that you would not only show us the truth, but convict our hearts, the, the, the ones that so easily go astray, that you would show us the truth that we might not veer from it. We again are thankful for your word that represents truth, absolute truth to us, instructions for us, your church. Guide us with it, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> so as I read the text this week and about just about all the interpersonal relationships that may exist in a church, and it really highlights a couple, but I think it really speaks to how we treat one another in general, there was a movie that comes to my mind. It's a movie called Office Space. It's not a family movie, so don't gather around the TV together. But it's still a very funny movie. Uh, there's a tech, It's this technology firm, and they're... Uh, it's kind of represents, you know, the late 90s tech boom, and there's, they're demonstrating all the quirkiness of the interpersonal relationships that might be in an office and conflict management. And, of course, they did it all wrong. That's why it's funny. Uh, in one scene, they bring in some consultants, you know, the, the consultants, and these consultants were brought in to clean house, basically fire a bunch of people. And uh, they're going to fire someone <clears throat> who has been mistakenly drawing a paycheck uh, even after he had been fired five years previously, this guy had never been told he was fired because no one deals with conflict, but he still was drawing a check because of a, a glitch in the system, the payroll. So rather than speaking to this person, they simply went to the payroll department, and as they uh, said, they fixed the glitch and uh, made sure that he would no longer be paid. And one of the characters said, we fixed the glitch. So, of course, it would work itself out naturally meaning that no one was going to speak to him yet again. They were just hoping that he would eventually go away. Uh, and their comment concerning that was, we like to avoid confrontation as much as possible. Again, funny movie. Um, but it's interesting that this same type of conflict management is often administered in the church. Rather than deal with folks in love and understanding, we kind of throw a few things at the problem, whatever those things are, and hope that the problem might just go away. It never does, though it manifests itself into something that can destroy the church from within. And so our passage today, we're given many ways as to how we should deal with one another in the church. And again, it's talking about particular relationships here that are spelled out, but I think that it really speaks to a broader sense of how we should love one another as the church. I think we'll see how our own sinful tendencies in these areas rise to the top when we read this text. Remember, 
Timothy is going to the Ephesian church that has been experiencing some internal strife. Uh, and he is, Paul, the writer, is giving his disciple, Timothy, some tools for working with those folks that are there. And he's already been talking about false teaching throughout the book and now these interpersonal relationships. So I think it's helpful for us as well, obviously, to, um, to see these as well because we are the people of God. We are not perfect. And many times, rather than using our energy for things that are good, we take difficulties of life out on each other seeking to destroy the body of Christ from within. And so with this text, we're going to consider three ideas, the task of the family toward its own, the task of the church toward its leaders, and then the task of Christ toward his sheep. Uh, with that, let's read the text together. Let's stand together as we read 1 Timothy chapter 5 in its entirety, starting at verse 1. 1 Timothy chapter 5. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first first learn to show godliness to their own household and make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow... Left all alone, has set her hope on God, and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they might be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for the members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is less than 60 years old, or if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one husband, and with a reputation of good works, if she has brought up children and shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their their passions draw them away from Christ, they may desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives... Who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened, so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of a double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against the elder except for the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that they may rest, or they may the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use little use a little wine for the sake of your stomach. And your frequent ailments. The sins of some men are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, 
but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So we'll, we'll just jump right into the text this morning. Uh, the, the first point being the task of the family toward its own. The first couple of verses, I think, show us a general attitude for this whole section, how we treat one another as family. You know, we'll do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. We encourage inside the church, we encourage one another as family members where there should be this idea of inherit respect and structure in the family. We should see the men as fathers and brothers, the women as mothers and sisters. It helps us to orient ourselves and our, the way that we look at one another. This makes sense in the way that God talks about his people, does it not? They are his children. We are all his children, adopted heirs of the kingdom. We all share in this inheritance, not because of who we are, but because of who Jesus is. He purchased it. And therefore, we have earned, through his blood, an equal portion of this inheritance. Again, not through our own works. It's not because we somehow have worked towards this inheritance, but through the work of Jesus Christ. So then, though there are structures in the family and in the church that denote leadership, I mean, there are leaders in the church, there are leaders in the family, and we see these in other places in Scripture, All members of the church are equally children of God. There is no child who receives more eternal life than another. We equally share in that inheritance together. And so since that is true, how should we treat one another? We treat one another as a family. Members all seeking out Christ and living toward the ultimate reward, and that is eternal life, which again, which he has bought for us, I think. These first two verses themselves could cover a multitude of problems in any church, but Paul continues to delineate further. And he instructs us then how we should treat widows. <clears throat> women in this society, I mean, again, understanding women in this society would have been largely dependent on the men in their family uh, for their property, for their well-being. So a widow then, without any family, had nothing. And so Paul is making the difference here between these two. He says, for a widow that has family, what should she do? Well, the family ought to take care of her, not for the sake of the church and its resources, but for the sake of the family, that they may learn to do right by their mother. Look at verse 8. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially the members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. We're told to, do, to not do so. It makes us worse than an unbeliever, basically a pagan. So show me someone who doesn't care for their family, and you should, it's someone who's worse than a pagan. I think we all would agree with that. Even an unbeliever would come in here and understand that, that family is an important concept. And so there's an important application for us, importance the families in the church. The church does not do well without families supporting her and without the families in the church supporting one another. We've all heard families, uh, or we've all heard these stories. I actually recently heard one from 
a student, of this whole family leaving a church, and not just uh, like like their immediate family, but their whole like all the generations and uncles and aunts and cousins and everybody left this church because of some slight they had received by the church. Not I don't know the story, I don't know the, the issues surrounding it, but I do know one thing, that church is absolutely going to be devastated. And so is that family. It's devastating to the individuals. It's devastating to the whole body of Christ. Why? Because the family is the essential unit of the church. Paul makes sure we understand that here. It's good for a family to take care of its members because it teaches them how to be a family. It teaches us how to be a church with one another. In doing so, I think it prepares us more and more for service to the church. If someone wants to serve the church more than they want to serve their family, that doesn't make sense. The family should come first, and thus the church springs from that. We we learn to serve others by learning to serve those that we live with. It makes sense. And as we also see his instructions on the different kinds of widows that we should care for, those who have lived out their faith, those who are older, there in verse 9 and 10, let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than or if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, devoted herself to every good work. Again, what do we, when we read this, what do we read? We read that these are women who have served the church with their lives, who have been blessings to the church. And so what should the church then do in response return those blessings to her. But Paul draws a line here with younger widows. And I think he's drawing a line with a particular kind of person here. The younger widow that he is talking about seems to be drawn away by the passions of the flesh rather than by godliness. They desire to remarry. And I think some may see this as Paul saying that remarriage is a bad thing. It's not because later he actually recommends the younger widows to do that. So what's going on here? They're getting married for the wrong reasons. They're they're getting married, and this is causing them to abandon the faith. Maybe they're marrying unbelievers. Maybe they're uh, some sort of infidelity there, something going on there. Look at verses 11 and 12. But refuse to enroll younger widows when their passions draw them away from, from Christ. They desire to marry. So something is drawing them away from Christ, and their desire to marry is doing what? Incurring condemnation. They have abandoned their former faith. So something is tied to this, causing them to want to abandon their faith. And then what are they doing with their free time as no longer married women? Well, verse 13 shows us. Besides that, they learn to be idlers going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So these are women who are using their free time to cause mischief and dissent in the church, gossips, busybodies. Uh, Another way of saying is women who like to be in everybody else's business because they don't have business of their own. And so what is Paul's instruction to them? Go get married. Go get married so that you can manage a household, so that you can have a household of your own. Rather than being a busybody, you can busy yourself with raising 
a household. That's a good thing. That's what Paul is saying here. He's making the distinctions. Why? So that the church can be freed up to care for those who need it the most. And so then how should we look at this as a church? Well, the widow is a person that we are told to care for all throughout the Old Testament. We see that God has a special heart for the widows and the orphans. We see this all throughout the New Testament as well. That this is in James, this is called the true religion, that we care for widows and orphans. God has a heart for the widow. It makes sense, right? Because what does the widow represent? They're at the bottom of their rope. They're unable to help themselves. Someone who's only able to care for themselves due to the generosity of others. This is an ultimate picture of how God ministers to all of us, really, isn't it not? As those who are unable to save ourselves and care for ourselves without his help. So a church that isn't caring for its needy is really no church at all. Now, the church must be careful to be good stewards of its resources, and I think we all understand that. Paul's tactfulness here in dealing with this issue is, is great. He's uh, more tactful than, than most of us would be. He knows that there might be some that would take advantage of these situations, uh, who might want to take advantage of this, this need or take advantage of the church. The same is true now. We see that a lot. But what should the church do in these situations? Well, I think the church should always err on the side of serving and helping too much rather than being cynical and overprotective with its resources. It does us no good to sit on a nest egg. What are we saving it for? However, we must also be careful to help to consider every need and to consider those needs uh, with God's resources. And I think we all understand that. And also, I think these principles go beyond the services of widows to anyone in the church who might have need. Folks who usually are usually too prideful to ask for help, uh, as, as, we've, as I've been in ministry for many years now, is that it happens a lot. There are people in the church who have desperate needs, but they're too prideful to come to the church and ask for help. And so I think what's, what's important there, well, again, that concept of family. We understand when a family member needs help because we know those people. When one of my children has needs something, I can sense it in them. I, I get that. And so we should have such close relationships and communication with one another. We should care for our people so much that when those needs arrive, arise, we see them and we're able to meet them. Again, most of us have been around the church long enough to know how needs arise. And I want to commend <coughs> this church because I think that we do meet one another's needs because we are a church that really does love one another. We've been together for several years now. We understand what that means. So let's not grow weary then in doing good for one another. Let the world see Jesus by the way that we love one another. And so that brings us to the second point, a task, the task of the church toward its leaders. Starting there at verse 17, we see the switch to how the church should hold its leaders accountable, uh, particularly the elders and how the elders should be held accountable. Verse 17 says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of a double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Uh, Paul makes this distinction between the elders that lead and then the elders that lead but also teach and preach. Our denomination, the ARP, 
actually distinguishes between what we call ruling elders and ministers. Ministers are elders. They act as elders, but they also teach and preach the gospel from the pulpit. And verse 18 then talks about the work of the minister. For scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. And so this again specifically about the work of the minister, Paul is basically saying that the minister should be paid for his work, and paid so that the minister doesn't feel like an ox that's hooked up to a grinding wheel and not even able to eat the, the grains that fall off to the side. Uh, I've met many in ministry that would feel that way. They feel like a muzzled ox. They don't stay in ministry long. And the churches that treat their ministers that way don't have their ministers long. I think this speaks for itself. Sadly, many ministers around the world are sorely underpaid and overworked. It's a picture of, again, I think this muzzled ox. We see this from the Old Testament. It's a perfect picture of that. The laborer deserves his wages. I'll just leave it at that. After this bit, Paul moves on to talk about how the church should then deal with the elders when they are persisting in sin. Paul uses the same structure that Jesus uses in Matthew 18. Matthew 18 is often referred to as the the quintessential text when it comes to dealing with any discipline in the church where Jesus instructs any person who has a problem with another, go to them in private and then go to them with, with one or two um, and then go to them with the whole church. Each one, if it's not working, to go to the next level. Paul uses this same structure here in those verses. <clears throat> and it's a helpful um, one, again, for the elders who, who may be struggling in sin, but also for churches that might be overrun with some sort of power-mongering elders. And I think we've seen both of those situations. We know both of them, you know, when they're just by being alive and being in the church. The church has a recourse then in order to deal with that. They should go to the whole church. And the reason for this, and the reason for this is so that it can be an example to any others who might act out. It says that, that so that the rest may stand in fear is what verse Verse 20 says that the reason for discipline then is twofold. Not only to bring the elder back who is, who is acting out in some persistent sin, but also discourage others who might be doing the same. He follows this up by saying that we should not be hasty in the laying on of hands. Meaning what? Well, we have to be careful who we bring into these positions. And I think as elders, we should also be careful by taking these positions. When I was going through the trials of ordination, is what they're typically called, they are definitely that, I was wondering what all the fuss was about. Why do we have to take all these exams and have to have all these interviews and write all these papers and all this different stuff that was going on? Why couldn't they just test me on the basics of the faith, my understanding of Scripture, of, of the covenants of Jesus, so that I could get started? Why did I have to do all this? Well, it's because of this passage and others like it that our particular group, the Presbyterians, I think we're slow to ordain because it's not easy. And we know that the, the trials and we know that the difficulties that arise therein, and I think congregations should be slow to do that as well 
as they appoint elders. As Paul says, what, what, how do the sins work? He said, verse 24, the sins of some men are conspicuous, meaning they're, they're right out in the open. It's easy to see, going before them to judgment. But the sins of others appear later. And this is what we have to be careful with, right? Because the sins of, sometimes those sins can rear up when uh, difficulty arises or there's something going on. And the opposite then should be true of good works. Our good works should be so apparent. There shouldn't be any hiddenness to that. It should be apparent. They should all be conspicuous that we are doing those good works. They cannot remain hidden. And so what does this say for us? Again, we've said this as we looked at the qualifications for elders. I think we should be careful here as, a, as Redeemer community. As we grow, we should be careful with who, we, who do we call Elders. This should be something that we use very carefully um, and prayerfully. And for those of us, for those elders that we have, <clears throat> you need to understand concerning us elders that we are not above counsel and we are not above rebuke. If we ever act that way, perhaps we should reconsider our position. If we need that, come to us. We do need it, actually. If we brush it off, come to us with a few more. If we're still stubborn, bring it before the whole church. Because if a church doesn't hold its elders accountable, just within a generation, it will be full of corruption. We have to be careful. Elders that are not accountable breed corruption. It's not a good thing. If only elders were perfect, this wouldn't be a need, but obviously we're not. We mess up a lot as much as anyone else. So we need the church to keep us in line. It's a good thing. And so with that, the task of Christ toward his sheep, the last point. As we consider then how we should treat one another, as this text is showing us, we know it's difficult because we know how we are. We bring all sorts of assumptions. We bring all sorts of prejudices to the table. We bring all of these preconditions that we have come up with in our lives in order to kind of keep us safe. You know, this, this cynicism that's like, well, I just don't trust anybody because everybody's out to get me. And so we have all of these things that we have, uh, that we have shored up in order to keep our emotions in check and our emotions safe. Paul warns us about this in verse 21. He says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Man, I wish that was possible. Wouldn't it be nice? So what do we need in order to do that? We need grace. We need mercy when we mess up. We need grace so that we'll hopefully stop messing up. But we won't. We know that this side of heaven, where the church is always going to be full of imperfect people, of imperfect leaders, and just a mess. So what do we need? We need Jesus Christ to sustain us. And he does. Why does he do that? Because he loves us. He loves his people. Would we let go of our children? Think of our children, all the kids that we have here today. If they messed up, how many times would they have to mess up before we'd say, no, not mine anymore? Go on, get out of here. Seven times, you know, Jesus kind of goes through this, this work with the disciples a bunch. 
Seven times seven, is that when we should stop doing it? He's basically making the, the idea that we should never stop pursuing those that we love. Hopefully we wouldn't, again, because we love our children. If, if we stopped it seven times, it would have been a while ago, all right? And my, I mean, I wouldn't even be here because my mom would have kicked me out of the house on like day two. <clears throat> but Jesus does this for us. As a church who seeks to love one another, we will mess up. But he loves us anyway. Isn't that great? This is the picture then of how we should love one another. What did Jesus tell us? Love one another as what? As I have loved you. Is that even possible? Well, no, but it's our standard. So we can never say, well, I think we're just loving them too much. No, we can't do that. Sometimes the loving thing is to call someone out in their sin that they're persisting in. We understand that. Sometimes the loving thing is to call a family then to take care of its own. Sometimes the church is the complete picture of Christ as we love folks. When they're completely unlovable, we have to do that. That is what we're called to do as the church, as individuals in the church, and as the church as a whole. As a whole. You know, the inclusion of the movie Office Space that I referred to earlier, well, the worker that was fired, he, of course, wasn't too happy, but he had such a weirdness about him and a quirkiness about him that he took matters into his own hands, so when they fixed the glitch a few days later, he burned the building down. Um, <clears throat> what is that a picture of? Well, uh, he had enough of their lack of love in his life, and he took matters into his own hands. I mean, this is a comedy, by the way. It's not some crime movie or something. But what's the point? How, what can we draw from that? What can we draw from this text, then? The point is that, that we don't love one another. If we don't love each other, sometimes even to the point of dealing with one another's sin and mess, we're going to bring each other down. Not only that, we're going to bring this whole church down around us. The church will be destroyed from within when the church within doesn't love one another. If the church doesn't love one another, it will not last long. It's not a church at all. So, brothers and sisters, let us love one another as Christ has loved us. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we know how difficult it must be to love us. We are forever seeking out other saviors. We are forever seeking out the lies of the world because we drift away so easily. And so, Lord, first bring us to yourself. Bring us close. Keep us close. And Lord, also help us to love one another, to be patient with one another, to care for one another as you have cared for us. Even when we are extremely unlovable, you love us all the more. And so Lord, help us to look at one another with those same eyes of mercy and of grace toward one another, that we would look past the faults and that we would see that we are all joint heirs with you, children of God, because of the work you did for us on the cross. We are thankful for that. It's in your name we pray. Amen.